Well, to that end, let's take our Bible and go to Matthew chapter 1. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and we are studying through the book of Hebrews, and we'll come back to that after the beginning of the new year. Today, we're going to look at the coming of Christ to save, according to Matthew chapter 1. Next week, just so you can plan ahead and prepare, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24, the coming of Christ to judge. That is what we will look at next week on Christmas Eve. But today, in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25, the sermon that I have entitled, The Coming of Christ to Save. We all would acknowledge together that we are busy, probably a little bit too busy, this time of the year. There's a lot going on in our world. There's a lot going on in our lives. There's no doubt a lot going on in your schedule. There's a lot in your calendar. There's a lot swirling around in our thoughts. If you're like me, there's probably a lot that is going on, and you need to just pause and sort of reflect and come back to the simple truth of God becoming man. With all of the shopping that is all around us and the, and the lights and the music and the travel and the get-togethers and the food and the festivities, this is a good and needed time to pause. It's a needed time to reflect. It's a needed time to marvel. It's a needed time to just sit in astonishment that God became man to save people like us from hell. Amidst all of the craziness of life, let's just all say it together, we need to refocus on Christ. We need to refocus on Christ and the gift that he is for us. Maybe you have been so distracted and so busy that you've come to a point, perhaps even this year and in the recent past, and you just got frustrated at how busy you are, and you think, I I haven't even thought much about the reason that we are coming to with Christmas. Our employment and our appointments and our presence can often cloud and distract us. I have come to believe, and I still think that this is true, one of Satan's greatest tactics, even in the life of the church and in Christians, is distraction. He loves to distract people away from Christ. Can you relate to that? I can as well. And yet, maybe we reflect together, has busyness become a burden in your life? Has it clouded your joyful satisfaction in Christ? And if you are honest enough perhaps to say yes, let me give you some words that John Piper so wisely and appropriately says in one of his Advent devotionals. John Piper says, God may be graciously and tenderly frustrating you with life that is not centered on Christ and filling you with the longings and desires that can't find their satisfaction in what this world offers. We get so busy, we get so busy, we get so busy, and we get frustrated. That's a gracious gift from God to remind us that I really shouldn't focus on the things of this world. Piper goes on to say, what a Christmas gift that would be from God to you. Let all of your frustrations with this world throw you onto the word of God and the living word, the saving word. It will become sweet like walking into paradise. 
I think that's a good word for all of us, that we need to be refreshed with the coming of the God-man into this world. Remember that verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's look to that great truth and that great reality in Matthew chapter 1. Follow with me as I begin reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is familiar, I know. But boys and girls, if you have your Bibles open as well, follow along. This is God's holy word. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The book of Matthew was written by a man with a Hebrew name, Levi. He was one of the twelve apostles. Another name, of course, here in Matthew's own gospel, he calls himself Matthew. He was a former tax collector. He was converted. He was born again. He was a follower of Christ. He was a proclaimer of Jesus the Messiah to his Jewish people in the land of Israel before he was killed for his bold proclamations. This is the earliest of the four Gospels that were written, probably within a decade of Jesus having been raised from the dead. In the early 40s AD, Matthew wrote this Gospel. He is a Jewish man himself. He writes to the Jews because he wants to show the Jewish people that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Messiah not only for the Jews, but for all peoples, Jew and Gentile. He is God's appointed Savior. At the beginning part of Matthew's record here in chapters 1 and following, he is going to prove the credentials that Jesus is, in fact, the King of the Jews. Here are just some of the proofs. In Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, we have that long genealogy, and this proves the human credentials, that Jesus is, in fact, the human one who has the right 
to the throne. He has the human credentials. Well, then in verses 18 to 25, we have the divine credentials, the virgin conception. He really is divinely sent from God. He's human. He is divine. But there's also prophetic credentials. He actually fulfills prophecy. 700 years ago, a man named Isaiah said a virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, and Jesus fulfills that. He's got the human credentials. He's got the divine credentials. He's got the prophetic credentials. And then we might say he has the spiritual credentials because he came with the purpose. And according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he has come to save his people from their sins. So from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he wants you to know this Jesus has the human, the divine credentials, the prophetic credentials, and the spiritual credentials to be the savior of the world. Now, really, along those lines, by way of introduction, I have to give you a few assertions as we begin. I I want to unashamedly affirm a few things to you about the passage that I'm going to preach on. Okay, number one, this is scriptural. This is scriptural, meaning this is the God-breathed Word of God. This is true, it is reliable, it is faithful, it is God-given, and it is trustworthy. It is scriptural. But not only is it scriptural, second of all, it is supernatural. I acknowledge, and you must acknowledge, that this is a supernatural event that happens. I mean, this is not just merely some human thing that happened. This is, this is a God-worked supernatural, divine miracle. But I also want you to note, third, this is very historical. Like, this actually happened. This this really happened in space, in time, in Israel, about 2,000 years ago. This is historical. This isn't some myth. This isn't made up. This isn't edited through the years with religious people who wanted to add a little bit of miraculous. This is real history. And fourth, I want you to hear this. It is also essential. Without this truth that we're going to look at today, you and I are hopelessly lost. This is essential, vital for the salvation of sinners. And Matthew chapter 1, even though it is a reliable record, it is a supernatural account. It is entirely historical and essential for us to be saved from our sins. And Matthew chooses to focus his attention, in this passage at least, on the man Joseph. We're going to look today at the virgin conception of Jesus through the eyes of Joseph. As it were, I want you to travel back in time with me a couple thousand years, and I want you to get your feet and your sandals dusty and put yourself in Joseph's shoes. I want you to walk in the shoes of a young teenager, 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 years of age. He's a Jewish boy from a no-name village called Netzaret, Nazareth. In fact, it was so small, it wasn't even in the Galilean record of villages. It was so small, so insignificant. That's why in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's where Joseph is from. 
So I want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of this young teenage boy, Joseph. I want, you to, I want you to walk in his shoes. I want you to see what he saw. I want you to hear as he heard it in this passage today. And I want this historical narrative to really be compelling to your heart in a special way today. I want to give you some thoughts as we think through this together in really four simple words. That's going to be the outline that we have. Let's begin, number one, with the conception. We have to begin here with the conception. And that's found in verse 18. And I know it's familiar, and I know it's so, so familiar to all of us, but I want you to look with me as we work our way through this account. Look at the conception in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. I had someone tell me this week that they thought I was a little bit crazy because I believed the Bible was God's word. And they were trying to compel me that it was just a human book that's gone through all kinds of change through the years. And I said, absolutely not. This is God's holy word. I want you to know we come to the portion of scripture today with the assumption that the Bible is true. We come with the assumption that the Bible is reliable. We, we come to the passage with the assumption that the Bible is historical and a supernatural record. I would be laughed at to shreds on a university campus if I say I actually believe this. But I do. I believe in the supernatural. I believe that God works miracles. I believe that God has clearly given us a trustworthy record. And quite honestly, let's just all acknowledge it. Matthew 1 right here is a totally miraculous account. It's unrepeatable. It is totally, fully, divinely a work of God alone. And I believe it. I believe it. We often call it the virgin birth of Jesus. Well, Technically, it's not the virgin birth. It's technically the virgin conception. Because the the, the birthing process of the baby Jesus was normal like any other human boy at that time. So it's not that the birthing process was anything unique. It was the conception of this baby that was so miraculous and unique. It was miraculous, it was supernatural, and it was a work of God. Verse 18 tells us that when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that is, they had not come together sexually in any conjugal union, she was found to be with child. Now, more on this in a minute, but betrothal is sort of like an engagement on steroids. It was far more legal. It was far more binding. You were considered husband and wife. It could only be broken by a divorce, even though in a betrothal, you were not living together yet. You had not come together physically yet. Well, Mary and Joseph are in that state. They are in that season of betrothal, and they had not come together physically. But, verse 18, she's found to be with child. There are two things that are included here. Number one, physically, it became evident that she was showing. 
She was pregnant. It was evident physically that she was pregnant, not only physically, but also supernaturally. The reality is that she was found in Greek grammar. We call it a divine passive. God did the work. She was found by who? God did the work. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. At the end of verse 18, you see it in your Bible there, by the Holy Spirit signifies source, origin, production. This little baby that had been formed in Mary's womb, get this, is from God, not from a man but from God. There's interesting chronology. When you put Matthew and Luke together, here's the chronology of how this betrothal process worked. First, God appeared to a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was the priest. He was the father of John the Baptist. And an angel appeared to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. And and the angel said to Zechariah that John, the son, would be the forerunner for the Lord. Luke 1.17. Well, shortly after that, according to Luke chapter 1, God appeared to Mary through an angel, the angel Gabriel. And God said to Mary that you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a child and you will call his name Jesus. And she probably, as a young Jewish girl, scratches her head and she thinks, how's that going to happen? How's this whole thing going to work? I've never been with a man before. And then after that, when that had carried on for a number of months, then God appeared to Joseph here in Matthew chapter 1. When Mary was already showing, it was was very clear that she had a baby, and this is from the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Okay, why all of this? Why? Why, number one in your notes, the conception? Why is that important? Because Jesus had to be born of the seed of a woman that is by the Spirit's doing and not by a man so that Jesus would not have the sin nature. Jesus had to be pure and perfect That's why Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. God is the one who brought about this conception in the womb of Mary. So the whole conception is all God's doing so that Jesus would be a real man, but be totally sinless in his nature. This is the virgin conception. But if you're taking notes, we, we have to come to Joseph. We have to walk in Joseph's shoes for a minute. And if you're taking notes, here's the second word. It's the word confusion. Confusion. So th- this child is conceived in Mary's womb by God's doing. It's very evident that she's showing. And now there's confusion. Okay, follow with me. Here's a guy, Joseph. He's a Jewish man from the village of Nazareth. He's a peasant. We know from the record that he was a poor man. So was Mary as well. 
He was a hardworking young man. Joseph was a craftsman. Perhaps in the Greek, might have the idea of a construction worker, maybe a carpenter. But regardless of all of that, his character is that the man is righteous. He's godly. He's prayerful. He's impeccable in following his God with all of his heart. He's a man of God. He's a man of holiness. He's a man of prayer. He's a young teenage man who has completely given his life to God to follow God with all that he is. Verse 19. Follow with me. And Joseph. Notice how he's called her husband. Do you see that? They're betrothed, but they're called husband and wife. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, he planned to divorce her, or you have send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, an angel appears to him. So Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Pledged, engaged, espoused to one another. Remember, betrothal is like a glorified engagement. It was more formal, more legal, more binding than our engagement nowadays. Women were often betrothed and married as young girls. Twelve, thirteen years old would have been very common for girls at that time to be betrothed and married. Boys would have been just a little bit older than that, having learned to trade and having to provide for their family. They were considered husband and wife in the betrothal period, and, and yet the only way that a betrothal could be broken was by the legal divorce, or the way that our translation has it, sending her away sending her away. Even though they had not come together yet physically, the man during the betrothal period, his job was to prepare the home. The woman's job was to prepare herself and to beautify herself as she grew and she matured and she aged so that when the time was ready, the man, when the house was ready, he would go and fetch his bride and bring her back to the home and they would have the wedding and the long celebration with the whole city and the whole community and all the relatives that would, that would be there. But if a woman in this time of betrothal was found to be pregnant, according to Deuteronomy chapter 22, it's called adultery. So get this. You're Joseph, and you're pledged to a woman named Mary, and she's found. To be an adulteress, visibly, visibly. So verse 19, Joseph, being a righteous man, and he doesn't want to disgrace her, he planned to divorce her secretly. He, he wanted to divorce her quietly and not expose her to the full force of the law, because according to Deuteronomy 22, verses 20 and 21, a Jewish girl found to be faithless, unfaithful and immoral, could have been stoned and killed. Mary, you're, you're pregnant. You have a baby. She could be killed. She could be stoned. No, notice with me, just for a moment, the, the, the conduct of Joseph. Ponder with me the, the, the conduct and the thinking and the pondering of Joseph. Imagine the godly wisdom that this young man showed is his tender consideration that he, he sees the appearance of evil. 
And yet, and yet she's betrothed to him, and he's scratching his head thinking, how could she be unfaithful to me? But he did not do anything rashly. He didn't do anything impulsively. He was patient. He laid it before God in prayer. He was thoughtful. He was intentional. But no doubt, can we all just say he was confused? And I get that from the verse phrase of verse 20. When Joseph considered this. Could you imagine all that's meant in that little phrase? All the days and the evenings and the weeks. What, what do I do? What, what, what do I do? I'm, I, I'm, I'm engaged to this woman. I'm betrothed to her. We, we are to be married, and yet we've not come together. She's been unfaithful to me. And he's confused, and he wants to honor God, and he knows that Mary wants to honor God. And he's considering, and he's thinking, and he's pondering, and no doubt heartbroken. Mary, being unfaithful according to the Jewish law, could have been stoned and killed. But if, according to Jewish tradition, if she wasn't killed, if she wasn't stoned, and the man would divorce her, she could choose to go back to her family if her family would receive her. Usually they wouldn't. And so if the family would not receive her, then she would be left to become a beggar. She would be among the ranks of the poorest of the poor. She would be like with the widows and the orphans. It would be a pitiable, a humiliating state of life. And Joseph is thinking all of this, and he thinks, I don't know what to do. I've, I've got to divorce her. I don't want to do it publicly to shame her and get her killed. So he, he shows compassion. With consideration to divorce her secretly. When all these things had revolved around his mind, he pondered, he deliberated, he wondered. Could you imagine the pain of being, of being so confused? She's been unfaithful to me. She, she has betrayed me. Who was it with? When? All the questions that would circulate in a young man's mind. And he thought, if I go ahead and marry her, I could be viewed by people as the father of the baby. And that would put him at jeopardy if he did that. So what do I do? Deuteronomy 24 permitted him to divorce her. He thought he had grounds for that. The consternation, the confusion, the consideration, the hurt. He was baffled. He was dumbfounded. He was brokenhearted. He was wounded. And yet he chose to be tender to Mary, even in such confusion. Don't you love the timing of God? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been there in times of absolute confusion. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Why me? Why now? Why in my life? Why, with all of this going on, we've done all of this. Why? You've got the confusion. Joseph can relate. 
Conception. Confusion. Well, then write down this third word. Praise the Lord for this. Visitation. God now intervenes. Oh, I love the timing of God. I love the perfect wisdom of God. I love the providence of God. Visitation. Joseph, according to verse 20, is considering all this. The word in the Greek means he's thinking in his own mind over and over and over and over. He's thinking, he's thinking. He's pondering all of these things. And then Matthew uses the word behold. In Matthew's gospel, the word behold signifies surprising action. Almost like you're startled. Almost like an attention-grabbing wonder. I never saw this coming. Maybe you imagine Joseph crying in his home. He's confused. He's hurt. He feels betrayed. And then all of a sudden, verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David? That's interesting. Because if you just look back a couple of verses, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 16, that's the genealogy. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. That genealogy in Matthew 1 is through the line of Joseph. He's the son of David. The angel says, Joseph, you're the son of David, connecting this with the messianic prophecies. Joseph, you've got a role to play in this grand design. God has been silent for 400 years. There's been no prophet. There's been no writing from a prophet. God has been silent for that intertestamental period. And now God speaks again through an angel to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, you you have a role to play. You are from David's line through Solomon. You have a right to the kingship of Israel. Jesus, get this, he has the kingly legal right to be the king, the Messiah, because of Joseph. You're the son of David. Joseph, son of David. And then the angel says this, do not fear. It's the most common command in the whole Bible that God says to his people in the Old and New Testament, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't tremble. No doubt Joseph was fearful. No doubt he was afraid. And yet God says, don't be afraid. Why? Verse 20. Look at the clarification here. Don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Why? Because the child who has been conceived in her is of, or from the Greek, literally, produced by the Holy Spirit. You can, what? What do you mean, a teenage boy scratching his head saying, what? What what do you mean the, the, the pregnancy in Mary is from the Holy Spirit? That child who has been conceived in Mary 
is produced by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 21, look at it in your Bible. Here's what the angel says. This is what God says to Joseph. She will bear a son. That's the humanity of this one. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Isn't that the great need in the whole world? Isn't that the great need in the whole world? I need someone to save me from my sins. If you know a non-Christian, ask them that question. How are you going to be saved from your sins? If you're with the family around a table, if you're with your coworkers in the Christmas celebrations or the holiday events come up, ask them, I, I have seen in my Bible the real meaning of Christmas, and it's this, how can we be saved from our sins? we got to be saved from the power of sin. Why? Because sin is way stronger than us. It's way more than we can handle. We, we've got to be delivered from the dominion of sin because this, it, it's an unbreakable nature that I can't break on my own. I've got to be saved from the guilt of my sin. The devastating shame and humiliation and the guilty conscience that comes with our sin. I need to be saved from the power of my sin, from the dominion of my sin, from the guilt of my sin. Yes, from the consequence of my sin. I need to be saved from hell. I need to be saved from God's wrath. I need to be saved from the punishment that God will rightly execute upon me for my sin. Power of sin, the dominion of sin, the guilt of sin, the consequence of sin, and hallelujah, the presence of sin. One day in heaven there will be no more sin. All perfection shut in and all sin shut out. And the door will be locked. No more sin, no more evil, no more temptation ever in heaven. Jesus Jesus will save his people from their sins. Put it like this, boys and girls, hear this. Jesus is the only one that can save you from the claw of the monster of sin. No one else can do it. Nothing else can do it. You can't do it. Only Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. I love the names. Did you see that there in verse 21? She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Yeshua, which in the Hebrew means salvation. You're going to call his name Yeshua, Jesus. Why? Because he's the one who's going to save his people from their sins. This emphasizes his work that has come to save. The human name Jesus emphasizes why he came to save. But not only do we have the name Jesus, that's the human name, There's another name that's mentioned here. Look at verse 22. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And now he's going to quote what we read earlier, Isaiah 7, verse 14. 
Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So the human name Jesus means that he's come to save, but now the second name Emmanuel emphasizes the divine nature that this one is God. Jesus, the human name. Emmanuel, his divine character. He has come, conceived in a woman by the working of the Holy Spirit, and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, because that's what he's going to do. He's going to save you. And yet, just like God said it 700 years ago through the man Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. That prophesied scripture, which I love in verse 22. Did you see it there? Did you notice? Even how God himself, he talks about fulfilling his own word. All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So God is the one who speaks through the prophet in the writing of the text. That's amazing. A lot there in the doctrine of the Bible. From Isaiah, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son And they call him Emmanuel. There is no greater blessing for God's people than to say God is with us. It doesn't say God will give you a bunch of gifts. It doesn't say God will make you wealthy and happy and, and, and give you a nice long life. No. The great blessing for every believer is that God dwells with his people. That's why heaven is heaven for the believer, because God is there and we are there with him. That's why Ezekiel chapter 48 verse 35 calls the future Jerusalem Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. That's why Revelation 21, verse 23, in the new heavens and the new earth, the Lord is there with his people. That's what makes Christianity so great. It's what makes heaven so great. It's what makes Jesus so great. He is the fullness of God with his people. By the way, that's what makes hell so terrible. Oh, God is there. But God is there in his holy wrath. And he is there in his holy justice. Sinners in hell don't want God. They don't want God. They hate God. They won't want anything to do with God. But for the child of God, for the Christian, oh, for God to be with us, for God to dwell among us, for us to say, God is mine and I am his, what? comfort and security that is. I find this kind of cool. When you think about Matthew's gospel, do you see here in chapter one, he begins, little discourse marker, Emmanuel, God is with us. If you fast forward to the end of the gospel of Matthew, the same discourse marker is there when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew 28, verse 20, teach them to observe all that I command you, and I am with you always. 
So the book of Matthew, we might say, has kind of a a theme from beginning to end. What is it? God is with his people. He's with his people in Messiah, the Lord Jesus. It's an amazing truth. And this is what the Bible teaches. I mean, Zechariah 9, verse 9, this one who will come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey is endowed with salvation. He's come to save. Psalm 118, verse 25, when Messiah comes to Jerusalem, everybody shouts, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke 1, verse 47, Mary, the mother of Jesus, rejoices in God, her Savior. In Luke 2, verse 11, the shepherds were told, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Peter is preaching, and he says that Jesus is the one that God has exalted as the Prince and the Savior. In Luke chapter 2, verse 30, the old man Simeon, when he came to Jerusalem and he found that young boy Jesus, he took that baby Jesus in his arms and he prayed and he said, My eyes have seen your salvation. To behold Jesus to behold the salvation that God has given. This visitation from God gives clarification. Back to the shoes of Joseph. Could you imagine, here you are, 2,000 years ago, you're in Nazareth, you're scratching your head thinking, this woman I'm betrothed to is evidently pregnant. And everything that you're thinking about is that she's been unfaithful, and you need to divorce her. And now... God visits you, and he comforts you, and he says, don't be afraid, and he says that God is up to something good. You don't understand it. You can't explain it. You never saw it coming, but God is not absent. He's actually involved. John Piper Another one of his Advent devotionals, he said, we need to say to the next generation of children over and over and over again, God is truthful. Just like 700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah said, a virgin will conceive and give birth. And you think, how's that going to happen? But he did it. God is truthful. God keeps his word. Boys and girls, hear that. God is truthful. He never lies. God makes a lot of promises, and he will never break one of them. Never. This is the beautiful blessing of Advent to receive it as a wonderful gift and give that hope to as many people as you can that God is truthful. So, before we go on to the fourth point here, Christian, never, ever doubt. Never doubt God's massive providence. God is always working out his decreed plan through every moment of life, every situation of your life, every circumstance of your life. You might see God, as Piper says, you might see God doing one thing, but he's actually doing a million things in your life at that time. 
So follow God and trust in God even if it seems foolish. Because God's ways are always the best. Even in your confusions, even in your uncertainties, even in your fears, even in your anxieties, one lesson that we could learn by way of application, fixate on Emmanuel. Conception. Confusion. Visitation. And then very quickly, in closing, number four. Reaction. What, what's the young teenage boy Joseph gonna do? I mean, he, he, still, he still can't hide the fact that Mary's pregnant. And yet, God has just visited him and revealed that she's not been unfaithful. This is actually in God's plan that God did the work and he has conceived a baby in her. And this is all part of God's plan. What's Joseph going to do? How's he going to react? Maybe we could say it like this God wants men and women who fully follow him. God wants men and women who fully follow him. Mary did. We're going to see here in a moment. Joseph did. Do you? God flowed unhindered through Joseph. He wasn't clogged with all of his sin and his selfishness and his pride and his hypocrisy and all these things. He, he was a godly man. He was a man of integrity. He was fully submitted to God as Lord and God as Savior. And he was totally surrendered to God. Question for us, are you useful to your master like that? Meaning, are you a clean conduit for God's glory and for God's purposes and for God's plan? Because, because God wants people totally committed to a life of holiness. In fact, I think of David Brainerd. David Brainerd, the missionary to the American Indians, he said, I have nothing to do with this world but only to labor honestly for God. I do not desire to live one minute for anything that this world can give me. Man, I want to pray that and really mean it. I don't desire to live one minute for anything this world can give me. It's like saying, I am all gods. I want to live fully, totally, only, unreservedly, unhesitatingly for God. Remember earlier when God appeared to Mary through the angel Gabriel and, and said, Mary, you're going to conceive and you're going to have a child and you will call his name Jesus. She, she said, Lord, Help, help me understand. I don't understand how that's going to work. And then the Lord explains it to her. And remember her reaction in Luke 1, verse 38. Behold, I am the bond servant of the Lord. I don't get it, but I submit to you. It sounds a little crazy. It's never happened before. But I will follow the Lord. Okay, verse 24. 
So Joseph, Matthew 1, 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep. So he was sleeping when this visitation from God came to him through the angel. He awoke from his sleep. I love the verbs. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary, his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You know what I find so fascinating about this? There's nothing about Joseph's reaction. I mean, were there any questions? What, what were his internal thoughts like? I mean, can you imagine his amazement? Can you imagine his relief? Can you imagine the gratitude, the pondering, the hope, the joy? Wow. She, she's faithful to me. And she's carrying the God-man in her womb. And then Joseph, no doubt, has at some point this astonishing thought, wait a minute, I've been entrusted with the care of God's very own son while he's growing up. I've got to teach him. I've got to train him. I've got to instruct him. I've got to model godliness. I've got to love him. I've got to lead him. I've got to protect him. I've got to provide for him. Whoa. But he obeyed. He obeyed. You know, there's a lesson here. And the lesson is this. God's ways, God's ways are not always perfectly understood. Nor are they always completely known or comprehended. Maybe you need to hear that. Maybe there's something in your life where you are absolutely confused at what God is doing in your life. Why me? Why now? Why this? Why the trial? Why the prolonged trial? It's not going away. In fact, it's, I'm praying and God, it's intensifying. But maybe what you need to hear is that in the confusion, God mercifully visits you in his word. He visits you in his word, and he wants you to follow him, and he wants you to obey him, and he wants you to trust in him, and he wants you to know that Emmanuel is with you. So, there's a couple of really key lessons here. Number one, we see the precision of God. Our God is precise. I mean, Joseph was going to divorce Mary, but God wasn't late. He didn't do it. God intervened. Perfect, precise timing. Second of all, we see the providence of God. God gave his word to Joseph. God gave his truth to Joseph, and God was working everything out according to his perfect plan. We see the providence of God. Third, we see the provision of salvation. It's only found in Jesus. This one who is born of a virgin Really a man, but yet not tainted with your sinful nature from Adam. This one, salvation comes in him. 
Fourth, we see the purity of the theanthropic person. That's a fancy theological word, theanthropic person for the God-man. The purity of the God-man. A real man born of a woman, and yet he was pure because he was conceived of the Spirit. Totally pure. And all that you need to come to God. Real quick, go with me in your Bible. Let's draw this to a close. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's actually in a very practical section. The context of Philippians 2 is God encouraging and commanding believers not to be selfish. And the great example that we have is Jesus. So look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude to yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, this is Jesus, although he existed in the very form of God, meaning he was identical, he was God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped, but rather he emptied himself. It doesn't mean he lost deity. He didn't lose deity. He emptied himself, as it were, of his divine prerogative, his own independent divine prerogatives. And he took on the form of a bondservant, verse 7. He was made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't just become a man, he became a slave. He didn't just become a slave, he actually died. And he didn't just die, he actually died as the sin-bearing sufferer on the cross. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him. How does God respond to this? God highly exalts him and bestows on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Before I close, I want you to jump with me into the deep end of theology for just a minute. Jesus has two natures in one person. He's not schizophrenic. He's not two people. He's one person, and he's truly God and truly man in one real person. I also want you to think about this with me as we're in the deep end of theology here. When Jesus became flesh and when he was born, he did not stop becoming God. His humanity covered his deity. His humanity veiled his deity. His humanity hid the deity. And Jesus chose to restrict himself by some of his divine independent powers. But he never stopped being God. He chose humbly to limit himself with real humanity. And while we're in the deep end, let's consider another point. That when Jesus became a man, listen to this, he became a man forever. 
He became a man forever. Even right now, this very moment in heaven, as Jesus is seated at the place of honor by the throne of God the Father, Jesus is a real, genuine, perfect, glorified, but a real, perfect man. He will always be the God-man. He will be the one that you can look on with your eyes and see him for endless eternities to come. And since we're in the deep end of theology, one more. This one who is the majestic king who holds all of the millions of galaxies in his hand is the tender, compassionate, loving Savior who says to you, you are mine and I am yours. Amazing, amazing truth to all of that. No wonder Wayne Grudem in his theology book, he said, this incarnation is the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. (laughs) More than the atonement, more than the resurrection, more than everything else, this miracle of God becoming man will remain for all of eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So we close where Matthew says in chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah that we have such a Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a profound, true historical record. As we walk in the shoes of this man Joseph and try to understand what you did and how you worked and how you, God, became man to save us. What a great Savior. We ought to go and we ought to tell this to everyone that Jesus Christ has been born. To God alone be the glory. In his name we pray.